electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Julia Borston with John Fort. Carl and Deirdre have the morning off today. Stocks off the lows of the morning after the S&P and NASDAQ see their worst day in two months. But there is at least one bright spot this morning. Adobe, it leads the S&P after reporting an earnings beat this past quarter. We'll see John's interview with CEO Shantanu Narayan, and that's going to come up in just a few minutes. And later, two more topics from Wall Street. Why investors should be bullish about Microsoft and Airbnb in 2023. But first, let's turn to the markets. The Nasdaq in the red again today after yesterday's more than 3% drop. That brings total losses for the year to more than 30% with more rate hikes on the horizon. So how should investors navigate the sector? Joining us now is BMO Chief Investment Strategist Young Yu Ma. Thanks for being with us today. Let's start out with your big picture perspective on all the macro factors in play. What are you watching? Well, the Fed certainly pointed a picture of stagflation and a hard landing, and that's really what's still rattling the markets and the markets are trying to come to terms with. Uh, the Fed came out with projections of higher unemployment, higher interest rates, lower growth, uh, and, and very difficult for the markets to digest. We actually think that we'll see something more akin to a soft landing and that we're probably seeing peak hawkishness out of the Fed. We do expect there's going to be a correction in some areas, still some estimate cuts to come in the next quarter or two, but we actually think they'll stabilize and we're on the path to a soft landing. So I think when we're thinking about the divergence in those market expectations, it's probably right now uh, pretty stark between the people who think there's going to be a hard landing and subscribe to the Fed's projections uh, and those who think the markets and economy can stabilize going forward. Yeah. Why are you so optimistic about a soft landing and how do you see the tech sector playing through that? Well, we think the underpinnings of a soft landing are really based on a stable labor market. We've seen that already, even though growth has slowed down that labor market uh, remains quite the labor market remains quite healthy and spending uh, despite the retail sales numbers that were soft for one month overall spending remains quite healthy as well so we do think the elements are in place for a soft landing even though we're going to correct uh, in certain areas and what does that mean for the tech sector it means we still want to look for areas of opportunity as we get uh, estimate cuts as there's some inventory correction that happens over the next few months uh, and even quarter or two we think these actually present buying opportunities rather than a spiral downward that's going to lead to a more severe outcome. So, uh, you know, we do think there there's still a correction that's happening in terms of inventories, in terms of an adjustment to slower growth. But we definitely see those as opportunities coming coming up. Young, yeah, I think it's interesting. I, ju- I just got off of a conversation with uh, Shantun and Ryan of Adobe, and we see that stock doing so well this morning and really in a in a way that not a lot of people expected because um, marketing related software spending one would expect would be weak in this environment given what we've seen happen in digital advertising 
but they were strong. Does that say something, anything about uh, subscription models overall and the position of enterprise software, or do you think this is just Adobe doing particularly well? Uh, I think that's a little bit hard to parse out. Certainly Adobe seems to be doing well uh, in, in terms of executing on its business plan. So uh, certainly kudos to that company for presenting uh, a pretty strong quarter here. But I do think overall this points to some divergences that are happening uh, in the macro environment and with spending overall. There are some companies that are still doing quite well. We've seen that uh, not just Adobe, but we saw that uh, recently in Oracle as well and Cisco, Broadcom. Uh, part of it's about end markets, but part of it's about execution as well. So, you know, I, I do think that if we take the picture that we're seeing, yes, some areas are struggling, uh, but it's not an environment, an expectation where the economy uh, looks like it's going to sink and all, all ships are going to go down with it. Young Yu, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts about the semiconductor inventory correction and how that is going to be changing things this uh, this quarter. I mean, it's so interesting looking back at how much has changed from a year ago, both to the negative and also in terms of the positive of, of resolving some of those supply chain issues. Well, we still think there's a ways to go with the inventory correction. I think the question and certainly some end markets have already signaled uh, much steeper corrections, some that are more tied to uh, consumer goods. There probably are still some areas, even some of the stronger markets, such as automotive, industrial, uh, data centers, which may announce some uh, softness going forward. But again, we still think those are buying opportunities. We don't think that's going to persist for multiple quarters. We think it's a correction that's already uh, underway in some, well underway in some areas, uh, and that will be relatively mild in other areas. And if we, if what our thesis is, it plays out over the year, which is sort of stabilization in the economy by mid, uh, mid-year, sort of second, third quarter, we think probably we see the trough in that correction uh, sometime late in the first quarter. So what's too cheap then, Youngyu? Is it semiconductors? Uh, if, if your thesis is correct and the landing is soft, what's being priced now as if the landing is going to be not so soft? Well, I, I think what we're really looking for is opportunities that arise over the next, uh, let's say, few months or a quarter to uh, as some of these cuts happen. Uh, I think right now, if we take the market overall and tech stocks overall, a lot of it looks pretty fairly priced. I mean, we've come down a lot already. Let's keep that in mind where we are today uh, versus where we were a year ago. There's been a lot that's already priced in in terms of a slowdown, in terms of a retrenchment to slower growth. So I think if we look across the landscape right now, the big distinction is going to be what happens when the next round of cuts come and where the opportunities present themselves. So I wouldn't say anything right now is is screaming too cheap. You have some areas that are stable. uh, And I I think uh, stocks like Adobe point to that, that uh, really provide a nice stability going forward. But other areas have seen a lot of cuts uh, and could see a big rebound uh, if the next round of cuts really is the bottom. You know, um, just to ask about one more comparison with a year ago period and what you're anticipating in terms of holiday sales. Are they going to be soft? You know, that impacts not just e-tailers, retailers, but also, of course, the advertising market. Um, and then also could indicate how much of a, of a downturn we're going to see in terms of consumer spending going forward. So what's your outlook there? We do think holiday sales are going to be a bit on a, bit on the soft side. And let's remember that they started off strong in October. And, and that we do think that does have somewhat of an impact. But again, we don't think the holiday sales in the season is really the big tell for what 2023 looks like. We think 2023 
uh, provide stabilization, whereas this year has been a continued ratcheting down growth expectations. We think the economy stabilizes, the markets stabilize, and as companies readjust to this modest growth environment, uh, we, we think that they start to reaccelerate profit growth as well by mid-year. Well, stabilization and growth in the second half of the year for next year. Youngu, thanks so much for joining us with that outlook. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, John. Well, let's see if that carries over to Microsoft. City out with a new note, naming the stock their top large cap software pick. Also bullish on smaller MongoDB and Snowflake as we head into year end. Joining us now, the analyst behind that call, City Research co-head of software, Tyler Radke. So, Tyler, let's start with Microsoft. Why that one, um, given the big acquisition overhang and uncertainty that it's got to deal with and some exposure to the consumer market? Does the diversification outweigh all that? Yeah, good morning and thanks for having me. So I think on Microsoft, clearly it's a it's a mega cap company, right? A lot of, lot of different businesses. You have some consumer, but really the crown jewel is the enterprise business. It's Azure, Office 365. Uh, it's that's the dominant franchise that, that drives most of the profitability. You know, I, if you look back over the last nine to twelve months, it's been a tough year for Microsoft, right? You've seen Azure growth miss expectations the last two quarters. The PC market has been incredibly weak. Uh, you know, they're guiding to almost a forty percent decline in uh, Windows OEM revenue uh, th this quarter. So I think as you head into next year. Not only do the compares get easier, but they are talking about raising price internationally to offset some of the currency moves. So I think that becomes a bit of a tailwind. You also are just seeing currency start to reverse a bit uh, internationally. So I think you, you add that together, the easing comms. We still think this is a double-digit grower uh, through, through the downturn. Uh, you know, I think in terms of Activision, uh, it, it, that is a bit of, of an unknown here, but I think you know, in, on a relative basis, you look at the enterprise business, that's still what's going to be driving uh, the most earnings power uh, over the next three to five years. And we still think that's a, a defensive place to be. Now, I'm even more curious about your calls on MongoDB and Snowflake. MongoDB, just a few days ago, pre-earnings was down under 150 a share. Now it's at 199. But, you know, it's, it's, it's richly valued, right, because it's been growing strongly. Why is now a time when you think investors can get into this name, given what we don't know about 23? Yeah. So, so to your point, there's a lot of uncertainty about 2023. But I think the things that we do know is that during a downturn, data volumes are still growing. You might see headcount reductions like you're seeing across the tech industry, you know, you're seeing issues at companies like Salesforce that have seat-based models. But, but I think data investments are inherently higher ROI throughout a good, good economic time or a bad economic time. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you look across the board, whether it was MongoDB, even Oracle, you're seeing very good database strength across the board. I think you are starting to see companies continue to invest in modernizing uh, this data layer, right, to modernize applications, uh, to make their businesses more efficient. And so we, we are actually preferring names in, in this environment that are more exposed to, you know, data infrastructure rather than seat-based models, just because we think that's a, a more defensive place to be in this environment. 
So, um, Tyler, just a couple of weeks ago, we heard from Snowflake CFO talking about their Q4 outlook, which is short of expectations, also talking about how they're seeing weaker consumption patterns in certain segments. I think that raised a lot of concerns, at least that day when the stock plummeted. But so many of these stocks have been on a roller coaster. Um, what's your outlook in terms of that stock in particular? Are they being overly conservative? What do you think we'll hear from them about this quarter? Yeah, so... If you go back to last quarter, to your point, the, the Q3 results and Q4 outlook was a bit disappointing, uh, but they actually guided for the following year, which I don't think investors were expecting uh, them to do that. And, and the stock actually began to recover uh, once they did that. And I think, you know, you look at where they're, they're going to grow next year between 40 and 50 percent, really uh, impressive growth rates with good profitability, you know, with 23 percent free cash flow margin. That's actually greater than Salesforce uh, will do. Uh, next year, and, and obviously Snowflake's growing a lot faster and a lot uh, smaller scale. Uh, I, I think for Snowflake, the distinguisher here is that you have a lot of uh, large customers that are more traditional industries, you know, such as large banks, manufacturers, uh, oil companies that are really starting now just to ramp up their consumption. They've gotten over some key uh, compliance or regulatory frameworks, and so now you're starting to see these traditional industries really ramp out, ramp up their cloud spending. And so while there are headwinds out there on overall IT budgets, I do think there's some pockets of strength. We think Mongo and Snowflake uh, do have good exposure to those traditional industries, uh, and that can set them apart uh, next year. All right. Uh, like a bold call. Tyler, thank you. Tyler Radke. Thank you. The CEO of Adobe is on the other side of the break. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. Adobe shares up almost 4% this morning off the highs on the heels of better than expected subscription growth and solid guidance. The enterprise giant's revenue up 10% year over year. Last hour, I spoke with Adobe's chairman and CEO, Shantu Narayan, for an exclusive interview. He told me the company continues to succeed in the uncertain economy, and he's still bullish on 2023. Given the strength that we saw uh, during the quarter, uh, you know, we reiterated those targets. But I think the way we think about it, and perhaps even more relevant as we celebrate our 40th anniversary, is in tough macroeconomic times, the stronger companies are going to get stronger. 
And so it's not for a lack of opportunity. It's not for a lack of great talent that we have within the company. We have these great technology platforms that we're building. We have a massive ecosystem. Uh, so we're going to do great, uh, whether it's a you know, tough macroeconomic environment or not. And what we might do is different, but I think the focus on profitability is something that investors have perhaps heightened a little bit more, John, as well through this period. And as you could see, uh, one of the amazing things was despite foreign exchange and the strengthening of a dollar being such a headwind for every business, we actually exceeded the EPS targets that we provided at the beginning of last year. And so, you know, we'll uh, tune uh, the strategy and the prioritization based on what it is. But at this point, we're just looking at the massive opportunity, the lead that we have, the differentiation, and saying, you know, let's uh, continue to focus on delivering great value to our customers. Got to touch on Figma. Uh, you said on the call that you uh, see that moving at the pace expected. But boy, there are a lot of questions about the regulatory gauntlet that you're going to have to run through, especially with uh, Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard even getting challenged. How long are you prepared to wait uh, for that to go through? And are there things that you're having to do to make sure that it doesn't become an overhanging distraction, even if it does eventually get approved? Well, the good news uh, there, John, is when you and I last spoke and we had just announced the acquisition of Figma, I think there were two questions. Uh, the first question was around what does that mean for Adobe's core business? And second, as you pointed out, uh, what does this mean uh, in the current regulatory uh, approval if it doesn't uh, go through? Clearly, we've demonstrated that the core business continues to do incredibly well. And you know that continues to be a focus for us. But we do believe that this is a great adjacency for us, I think, in terms of accelerating product design, in terms of what we can do for collaborative creativity, as well as you know this emerging space where creativity and productivity are coming together. We've seen a marked difference in terms of how uh, the financial community is now getting excited about the potential of Adobe and Figma coming together. I think as it relates to the actual process, uh, the process is proceeding apace. Uh, and you know we are engaging, as we said on our prepared remarks on the call, uh, with both the DOJ as well as with the EU. Uh, but we're confident and you know we will continue to work the issues with all of the regulatory approval bodies. So one remarkable thing about this quarter to mention, and then I think uh, an outstanding question, the remarkable thing is net new digital media annualized recurring revenue was up $576 million year over year. That's above the 550 high end of the guide that Adobe gave. So even in this environment where digital advertising is constrained, they continue to be able to do that. And the question I asked him was, how much of that gets challenged in 23? Is this sort of a lagging indicator? Will there be churn? He and the CFO and others argued on the call that their ability to look at how the product is being used and create these funnels for increased use is going to mitigate that. Meanwhile, Adobe also celebrating more than just a strong quarter. Ryan reflected on Adobe's 40 years of existence and where he sees the future. It's uh, really been a blessing in my life, John, that I got the opportunity to work with uh, you know, two legends in the computer industry, John Warnock uh, and Chuck Geschke. And among the things that I learned from them uh, very early on uh, was first, you know, build technology that amazes and inspires and makes an impact. And 
when you think about Postscript, my first product uh, that I really worked on was InDesign, and InDesign certainly transformed the publishing industry. And so I think this focus on technology platforms that are durable, the other theme for us is always about uh, just recognizing that great ideas come from everywhere in the company. And if you can create a culture where people feel like they can do their best work and they can grow, uh, that really is at the end of the day, uh, a significant su predictor to success. Part of the reason why he's in Bangalore this morning, morning here, evening there, meeting with Adobe's team. Well, Shantanu himself, Julia, has been with Adobe 25 years. So I kind of asked him, is this a swan song? How long is he going to stick around? He said he's still excited to wake up in the morning and tackle these problems. So it doesn't look like he is on his way anywhere anytime soon that doesn't involve Adobe. Yeah, well, it, there's so many questions I have for you, John, after your chat with him, one of which is really about Figma. You know, assuming that deal does go through, and of course, there's still those regulatory handles, but assuming it does go through, I'm so curious how he sees the next 20 years or even just the next five years of Adobe playing out in light of that acquisition. You know, does that indicate a new focus, a new direction? Are they going to eventually be interested in more of those types of acquisitions to expand? Mm -hmm. Well, let me tackle that one. I think it's interesting. Uh, Shantanu himself came to Adobe as part of an acquisition. So uh, Adobe's had a history of doing this. He's been trying to articulate um, this vision of productivity plus, plus creativity and Figma bringing more of a productivity capability into Adobe's suite. And that's not entirely far afield for Shantanu Narayan's Adobe because he brought um, a, a sort of digital marketing plus creativity capability there that turned this into more of an enterprise company when it was more of a niche creativity company. So that's what the vision is. And Adobe with, with XD and things didn't succeed in this area without Figma. But that said, he's trying to also make the argument, clearly our core business is fine, Figma or no Figma, but we think we can get it done. Yeah, and, and to hear you talk and him talk about this creativity plus productivity, this idea that Adobe really sees itself as an essential software tool for enterprises as they navigate this economic downturn. Um, and also to hear your comments there about the churn and the idea that if they are essential, they're driving productivity, then you're not going to see customers drop them um, in this new um, tougher economic environment. Curious for the outlook, though, specifically around that digital entertainment, digital media content space which has seen so much growth, maybe we'll see less growth going forward, but is Adobe going to continue to be an essential piece of that? His argument is that there's still this digital transformation happening, even within the entertainment industry, where more people need to be creating and reviewing digital assets. And so it's not just an, an effect from the macro. The fact that they've moved to this subscription model, they're keyed in even closer than they have been in the past to what the customer needs and bringing updates that are going to keep that churn down. Next year's going to be a test of that, right? We saw Intuit making a similar argument for SMB. Uh, Sasan Ghadarzi was on with us just a couple weeks ago, uh, making the argument that small and medium businesses need this underlying digital infrastructure to run in bad times just as much, if not more than in good, Julia. So 23 is going to be the test of, of this theory, but this is a strong Q4 and end of the fiscal year that Shantanu Narayan has to make that case. It will indeed be a test. Now we see Adobe shares up about three and a half percent. John, thanks so much for bringing that fantastic interview to us. Now we have Kate Rooney with the news update. Hi, Julia. Here's your CNBC news update. At this hour, Goldman Sachs is planning to cut up to eight percent of its workforce as it adjusts to a weaker outlook. Sources tell CNBC 
Staff reductions will be across the board, but the loss-making consumer unit may be hit the hardest. The cuts are expected to happen next month before annual bonuses are paid out. More evidence that the U.S. economy is slowing. S&P's global index of U.S. manufacturing and services sectors fell more than expected. An S&P economist says the new reading points to a one and a half percentage point annualized decline in Q4 GDP. Winnebago was one of the few stocks rising amid the broader sell-off thanks to strong quarterly uh, results, but the RV maker has given up some gains of more than 4%. It's now 1% in the red. And global coal use is set to hit a new record for the first time in nine years thanks to robust demand in emerging Asian economies. The International Agency, Energy Agency rather, says coal will remain the largest single source of carbon dioxide emissions. Back to you guys. Okay, thank you. Now with tech's huge turn lower, more and more companies are turning into prime acquisition targets. We've especially seen a boom in take private deals in the software space over the last year, even just the last few months. Just this week, Toma Bravo agreed to take Coupa Software private for $8 billion inclusive of debt as valuations continue to fall. Where might the next deal be? Joining us now, Battery Ventures general partner, Dharmesh Thacker. Uh, Battery Ventures was an investor in Coupa. Dharmesh, welcome. Uh, is it this, this space, companies between $1 and $10 billion in market cap that really have to ponder whether it's worth it to go it alone for this stretch? John, great to see you again. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, yeah, I think, John, it depends upon, uh, you know, whether you're a public company or private company first. You know, if you're a public company, uh, you see the mark-to-market every day, which has an impact on your, your shareholders' perception, your employees' perception. And so you look at somebody like Coupa, it's a, it's a stellar company by all means. If you look at, uh, you know, the billion dollars in revenue from where we invested in the company and we are granted we're not investors anymore. So I'm just looking at it outside in. But to go from 10 million to a billion, be able to generate 100 million in cash flow every year, uh, and then to take an acquisition offer at eight times revenue, it is a bit of a head scratcher. But on the other hand, you look at, you know, what the impact is on employee morale. When you see a drawdown of the stock at 80%, you look at the investor patience and you look at this and say, hey, does Toma Bravo have a different trick up their sleeve where they can combine Coupa with Anaplan and unlock a lot more value in doing so? So you weigh the pros and cons as a public company of going it alone versus uh, taking a private equity buyout and, and explore the, uh, the pros and cons. And in the case of Coupa, Rob is a stellar operator. I think it made sense for them to go forward with that. Uh, yeah. Although for the investor looking outside in, it makes you wonder why take an acquisition offer at 10, 8x when the when the 10-year average is uh, 10x multiples. Right, but look at what the past 10 years has been like in the markets, right? And we're in a period that's nothing like that. I, I spoke to Rob Bernstein, yeah. uh, the, the CEO of Coupa, the morning that the deal was announced. He said that from his perspective, he got every penny off the table for existing investors, but isn't this probably a case of something we're going to see back in the public markets in a couple years anyway? It doesn't seem like the argument is that this is something that was broken, not working correctly, that's going to require a whole lot of you know, private equity eggheads to, to go in and fix. It's just that the market isn't really feeling some of this stuff at this size right now, right? You're right, John. I think it's a moment in time. Over the last 10 years pre-COVID, the forward uh, sales multiple was closer to 9x, and currently it's trading at 5x, right? So it's anybody's guess if the interest rate environment in the macro 
will put us back on the 10-year average and regress to the mean next year or three years from now. And so there could be some near-term pain and depends how much staying power you have uh, before you want to uh, you consider some of this exit. So it really depends on how much staying power you have in this market and how long do you want to wait it out before the market regresses to the mean. Um, so that's, yeah. But Dharmesh, it sounds like ultimately your outlook is predicated on this expectation that we'll see an even greater increase in, in infrastructure spending moving into the cloud. Um, in light of that expectation and some of the conversations we've been having earlier this hour about Adobe's results, about a concerns uh, about the economy going into next year, how do you see that shifting spend playing out? And which companies may be worst positioned for this and may be pushed to sell, and especially in private companies that may not have as much access to capital as they did a year ago? That's right, Julia. So let's let's uh, separate out the private versus public companies. On public companies where you have meaningful revenue scale, profitability in many cases, which private companies don't have, I generally tend to be bullish on a three to five year horizon for cloud spending. Uh, if you look at it, we just released a report called State of the, State of the Open Cloud we see Amazon, Google, Microsoft collectively at $160 billion in revenue, growing 25 to 30%. And that's only 20% of the 900 billion in legacy infrastructure spending that is waiting to be disrupted. And then you look at cloud companies like Datadog, Snowflake, Cloudflare, MongoDB, and many others that we covered earlier today that are indexed to those same trends. And you see 26 companies with more than a billion dollars in revenue in the last three years compared to only seven just a decade ago. So right. if you look at the overall environment, it feels like cloud infrastructure spending should be robust and the leaders in each of these respective markets should benefit. And now, it's, not just, is it, it's not just cloud infrastructure, is it? Because over the past few days, we've had the CEOs of companies like Samsara, Procore, and Smartsheet on tech check-in, and they're not necessarily infrastructure, they're targeting specific vertical industry needs and arguing that there's this digital transformation that continues no matter what the, the macro situation. And, and yet their valuations have taken huge hits. I think a question is, is private equity and is this M&A environment putting a bit of a floor under some of those stocks or no? Even though they're not profitable most of the time and they have some uh, heady valuations, they also have heady growth. Yeah, you're right, John. So you made the point that companies like Samsara and others that are indexed to more resilient sectors like manufacturing, energy, perhaps financial services are still doing well. And you just saw Shantanu talk about Adobe benefiting from digital transformation. So some sectors in the market are definitely benefiting vertical software companies as well. Um, infrastructure is benefiting as well, and those are mutually exclusive. And those sectors tend to be resilient and, and uh, benefit companies that operate there. It does beg the question, if you are, you know, if you are a billion dollar revenue business that has the potential to go to five or 10 billion over the next three to five years, do you worry about the near term multiples of 5X that are dictated by interest rates? Or do you focus on the market opportunity and grow into a three to $5 billion revenue stream? And as multiples regress to the means, when you have more clarity on the interest rate environment in two, three years, you unlock a lot more value, both by revenue growth and multiple expansion. Right. So it does well, make you wonder that while private equity it, has the floor, why, why jump into it now? It does, though I guess you, some of these companies might think I have the option of doing it on my terms now, or if we end up with a, a further downturn in the markets in 23, I might have to do it on some activist investors' terms. Uh, Dharmesh Thacker from Battery Ventures, thank you. Great to see you again, John. Thank you. 
One cloud name that's outperformed this year, Box. Despite the downturn, the cloud storage stock is up nearly 20% this year to date as that company expands its enterprise footprint. It is down just fractionally today. We'll be back after this break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It is time now for a gut check on Meta. Shares are now up 4%, the company getting a boost thanks to an upgrade to overweight from J.P. Morgan, raising the price target to 150 a share from 115 The firm says increased cost discipline, a more favorable revenue outlook, and compelling valuation paint a brighter picture for the road ahead. Shares are up 31% off their recent lows. Julia, I mean, are they hearing something... Is this kind of like Fed speak? Are they hearing something from Zuckerberg that the rest of us aren't? Because people seem to think he's going to stop spending so much on the metaverse, but I don't think he exactly <laughs> said that. Well, look, I knew you were going to bring up the metaverse here, which is why I, I'm laughing because I know you're such a metaverse skeptic. But what's so interesting here is this note and some other more bullish commentary that we've heard about meta recently. It's all about this idea of cost discipline. And what that really translates to is not spending as much on the metaverse right now, reprioritizing and reprioritizing, John, to focus on the revenue generating businesses and generating new revenue from the likes of things like real. So what do you think, John? Is he backing away from those metaverse bets? I just, I just don't remember if he said he was doing that or if people just read into things that he said and they're hoping that he's gonna do it. It seemed like he cut people, including maybe even mostly from the core business so that he could continue funding the metaverse in 2023. That's what I thought I saw happening, but maybe I missed something. I think that he did say he was going to be less aggressive in that regard because he is focused on the areas that are making money. But I'm sure we'll hear much more in those next quarterly results. And look, I would love to interview Mark Zuckerberg. So please uh, consider an open invitation there, Facebook meta. Um, meanwhile, Twitter suspending the accounts of several journalists who cover both the social platform and its owner, Elon Musk. Those suspended include reporters from the Washington Washington Post, The New York Times, and CNN. This move follows Twitter's suspension of an account that was using public flight data to share the location of Musk's private plane. Last night, Musk tweeted, quote, criticizing me all day long is totally fine, but doxing my real-time location and endangering my family is not. Same doxing rules apply to journalists as to everyone else. Seven-day suspension for doxing some time away from Twitter is good for the soul. So this move meeting pushback as some call out Musk, who was such a staunch promoter and proponent of free speech on the platform prior to owning the company. Uh, John, do you think he's conflating these two things? Do you think those journalists are really doxing or rather just to translate that and giving away his personal information, address, etc.? Well, I don't think it's that simple, Julia. From, from what I have seen, not all of these journalists were linking to something that showed where his jet was. They were talking about the story, tweeting about the story in some cases. So it doesn't seem like Elon Musk is telling the truth about what these journalists did, or he's having some, you, you 
tweeted something out that was a link to something that linked to something that I don't like, that doesn't seem like a, a very coherent argument. And so therefore, a lot of people have questions about whether he's creating a different set of rules when he feels uncomfortable, but it's okay for other people to feel uncomfortable in the name of free speech. I think he's got some explaining to do here. Yeah, it does not seem like a very consistent free speech standard there. You know, I think it's interesting to think about the implications of this for advertising. You know, I cover the media and advertising business, and the question is, all of those brands, John, that said they were going to pause spending on the platform, are they coming back? Doesn't seem like they're really coming back yet. And we heard today from Color of Change and Rashad Robinson saying, we have called on advertisers to pause their spending. We want to reiterate this. He's not being consistent. He's not being fair. And remember, John, of course, there's been an uptick in hate speech on the platform that's been reported on as Julia, well. Julia, but do advertisers really care that much about this? I mean, advertisers like attention. And there's a lot of controversy in media of all sorts these days. Uh, inconsistency in uh, enforcement of, of news rules or just rules in general doesn't seem to be grounds for all advertisers backing away. Well, advertisers don't want to be associated with hate speech. And if there is indeed an uptake in hate speech, that would be reason to pause. And also, they want to make sure that things are working. They are pulling back on ad spending overall. And if that's and this is all an excuse to pause spending on Twitter to figure out what's working and what's not, maybe they're taking that as an opportunity. Okay. Well, it's not just Adobe and Meta leading the way this morning on the S&P. Chinese consumer tech names also among today's top gainers, including JD.com, Pinduoduo, and Alibaba. Tech Check. We'll be right back. You are looking at a big tech name that has taken a beating this year, but Morgan Stanley thinks it could rally as much as 64% in 2023, thinking it can overcome any supply chain disruptions. To find out which stock this is, subscribe to CNBC Pro. Tech Check is going to be back in just a moment. Let's turn now to another topic. Take a look at Airbnb. Cowan naming the stock their best online travel stock for 2023, calling it a global leader in vacation rentals with an outperform rating and a $125 price target. The analyst behind that call joins us now, Cowan Managing Director Kevin Kopelman. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. So, Kevin, I understand that Airbnb is the leader in vacation rentals, but how concerned are you about the macro overhang and a recession impacting all travel next year? Look, the, the macro risk is is obviously very real, and that's something you could say about almost any stock. Uh, but that being said, if we look past that, Airbnb is the leader in a over $200 billion market, and they've been very resilient. If you look at their numbers, they're going to be over 70% larger or about 70% larger this year than they were pre-pandemic compared to a hotel industry that's about maybe 5 to 10% bigger in the U.S. and Europe. And that's a that's a clear uh, long-term trend. When we look at our, our survey data, travelers are telling us they only want to stay in vacation rentals more in the future. So it's it's not something we see reversing. Uh, so, you know, that's how we get comfortable with it. 
Yeah, there's no doubt that the pandemic really was a tipping point to convert a lot of people who never rented through Airbnb before to get used to this platform. But talk to us about some of these Airbnb specific questions, such as inventory. Have they really addressed some of those inventory concerns that had weighed on the stock recently? Absolutely. So we think some of the controversies surrounding Airbnb right now are overblown. If you look at inventory and listings, they actually accelerated up 15% year over year in the third quarter. It's a very healthy uh, network that continue, continues to be uh, consumer driven. So people want to stay in these rentals and that you know that's really driving the entire trend. And we think there's runway there. If you look at the U.S. alone, there are over 8 million second homes, the vast majority of which are not yet on Airbnb. So we, we actually do think it's a healthy environment. Kevin, how are you modeling the uh, geopolitical and energy risk in Europe? Is that a driver for uh, European real estate owners to list more on Airbnb? Or is there a level of disruption at which that becomes a, um, a hurdle for would-be travelers to certain places in Europe and would-be uh, uh, landlords, you know, Airbnb uh, renters, to actually make their places available? Yeah, so that's certainly it's one element of the macro risk, but ultimately it's going to come back to travel demand. As of right now, people are continuing to travel. The numbers look good. There have been pockets of weakness that you've heard the airlines talk about with uh, business travel plateauing a little bit. But as long as consumers are traveling in Europe and continuing to do that, uh, the supply is going to be there. We don't really see the energy specific risk for Airbnb. Uh, that being said, it is it is part of that bigger macro risk that, that we can't ignore. What about a return to the office, Kevin? I've heard so much about how hybrid, flexible, remote work really enabled people to take long weekends, work remotely, um, maybe from an Airbnb, and how that really sort of supported that trend. Do you think the return to the office that we're seeing more and more companies focus on is going to impact growth potential? And we saw, uh, we saw, for example, in 2022 is a great year for urban and hotel recovery. But when we think about how well Airbnb has done, this is this goes beyond just during the pandemic. They've been taking share almost since the time that they were they were founded. So this is this is really consumer driven. Uh, people loving staying in this vacation rental type property, especially with groups and families, and it, and it tends to provide a really good value. So return to the office, I think that's something that, you know, it's been reflected in the numbers that we've already seen. And uh, clearly, Airbnb is continuing to do well. Well, fascinating times. Uh, the stock is down nearly 2% today. Thanks so much for joining us, Kevin, to highlight why you're bullish on it. Thanks for having me. Did you miss part of the show? Or maybe you just want to relive it? Well, don't forget to follow and subscribe to Tech Checks podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, until your battery runs out wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing before we go. Avatar The Way of Water hit theaters last night, notching $17 million as it heads into its opening weekend. Julia breaks down the outlook for Disney. Julia. Well, back in 2009, James Cameron's Avatar grossed $2.9 billion. That made it the highest grossing movie 
of all time. And here we are 13 years later, and there is a lot riding on the sequel, which reportedly cost about $250 million to make, plus much more for marketing. But director James Cameron indicated that it might have cost a lot more when he told GQ that the film would need to be the third or fourth highest grossing film in history in order to break even. Now, that would mean topping Star Wars The Force Awakens, which grows $2.07 billion in fourth place for all time. Now, this is, of course, a very important film for Disney. Avatar was seen as a key piece of Fox's entertainment assets, which Disney acquired, and also Disney bet big on it with its investment in the Avatar-themed area at Disney World. Now, working in the film's favor, it faces little competition for this type of film until the new Ant-Man comes out in February, and it has secured a release in China, which is, of course, a big market, and a market also that yielded very high returns for the first Avatar. Now, on the downside, it has been 13 years since the original film, so maybe less familiarity with the franchise, and it runs over three hours long, so that limits the number of showings that theaters can have every day. Plus, James Cameron, he developed this film. He hoped people would watch it in 3D, and 3D hasn't really taken off since that first Avatar. Now, this film's performance is being closely watched, not just by Disney, but also by the theater chains, which have struggled with a box office that's still about 34% below 2019 levels, according to Comscore. And John, the other movie studios would also like to see a hit here because that would indicate that audiences are still eager to go back and that the success of Top Gun Maverick wasn't just a one-off. This will be a tough one, I think, Julia, because the first Avatar, it was supposed to be this technological revolution in 3D, which didn't really have much in terms of legs beyond that one. And you've got to be out of your teens to remember seeing this one in the theater. We'll see. Well, one more gut check on Salesforce. Stock was above 300 a share last November. Now it's at 127, down another 2% today, uh, 20 just this month. J Julia, um, whether we're looking at Salesforce or at Avatar, there's a question of whether things that succeeded in the past can continue to, and that's just going to be a theme for these last couple weeks of the year. Yeah, certainly, John, just looking at some of the big movers today, we see Tesla down 5%. Um, we see some of the game makers um, down, you know, Mattel and Hasbro both down, despite the fact that we're going to the holiday season. Um, and then Disney down, speaking of, uh, of the Avatar launch here. And a call back to the beginning of the show. If you want to watch my full interview with Adobe CEO Shantu Narayan, that exclusive, you can check it out on Tech Check's Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Uh, and as we head toward noon, I mean, Tesla is down almost 5%. Adobe still up, but just about 3% now, Julia. Uh, it's been an interesting week. Next week's sure to be interesting, too. The Halftime Report starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.